They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 28 A Very Dark Character This episode is divided into two parts. Firstly, I want to dig deeper into the backstory of Mr. A, this man allegedly at the centre of the murder story. And I say allegedly because we really don't know if it's true. What we're doing at the moment is going through the process of trying to establish whether it's true or not. And as I start to put together this podcast, I would rate myself at about a 50% believer in this story. But in the first part of this podcast, I hope to dig a bit deeper because I've uncovered someone who knew him really well. So if he says to me, well, he was as pure as the driven snow, then it would certainly cast a lot of doubt on whether he was a ruthless killer. But secondly, in the process of investigating Mr. A, I discovered something that is completely unrelated to the story we've been investigating, but does relate to something we heard much, much earlier in the investigation. And when I heard it, it was one of those moments that happen occasionally in this investigation when the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. So whatever the outcome of the story we heard in episode 23, I wouldn't have made this discovery unless I was investigating that story. It's strange how these things work out. One thing always seems to lead to something else. And this discovery could be quite important. The problem is, it's quite sensitive. So I've got to work out how much I can tell you. But firstly, let me bring you up to date with a bit more information about George Robinson, who he managed to finally identify last time. Straight after the last episode, a few people pointed out to me something quite important, that the reason his death would have been recorded in Derbyshire and not East Staffordshire and investigated by Swaddlingcote Police, not Burton Police, was because of the precise location of where he had lived. Because he'd lived on the other side of the train track, the other side of the train line, from the other houses in Waterside Road, that train line was the boundary. His was the first house across that boundary. So even though he lived in Stapen Hill, which is generally viewed as a district of Burton, because he lived where he did, he was in South Derbyshire and in the jurisdiction of their police force. And the fact that the death was recorded in Derbyshire and Swaddlingcote's police were involved, that's just further proof that the report in the newspaper 
must have been the George Robinson that we're looking for. The one with the dogs, the one who lived in the shack. Because his was the only house in Waterside Road in Derbyshire. The rest were in Staffordshire. To be absolutely certain, I ordered his death certificate. And that came last week. And it's pretty much as we thought. His date of birth was given as the 7th of April 1908. His death on or about the 12th of February 1991. And that on or about is another piece of confirmation because clearly no one was with him when he died. He was found some time after he died. So they're only presuming a date of death. And his address was given as 23 Waterside Walton Road, Draclo. Now probably because it was on the other side of the boundary from East Staffordshire to South Derbyshire. The informant on the death certificate seems to be someone in the funeral service, not a family member or a friend, because they're asking for permission for the body to be cremated. Finally, a couple of weeks ago, somebody contacted me on Facebook to say that one of their relatives knew George very well, and he did indeed move to Burton from Middlesbrough, and he was an engineer and that he had been married before. So I'm satisfied that's our man, the man in the shack with the dogs, who allegedly told our narrator in episode 23 the story of how Fred died. Now, how knowing that is going to help us in the future, I don't know yet. But I don't like leaving people unidentified. Now we've got him. And now we can move on. But whilst I was in the process of ordering death certificates, there was someone else's death certificate I wanted. Matthew James Jackson. Remember him? And I've got that now. And that's going to be useful. But that's definitely for an episode or two in the future. For now, let's turn our attention to Mr. A, the person at the centre of the story that allegedly George Robinson told. So, let me explain. Whilst I was trying to find George Robinson, I was having lots and lots of conversations with people who knew him. In one of those conversations, it dawned on me that this person also knew Mr. A. Now, you'll remember our narrator was Mr. A's nephew. Well, the person I just discovered, let's call him Terry, was also Mr. A's nephew, but from a completely different side of the family. Now, you may think if Terry and the narrator were connected, they may be all part of some elaborate hoax. But I knew for a fact that these two people had not spoken for 40 years. This wasn't a close-knit, big, happy family. In fact, it was quite the opposite. So I spoke with Terry, and he knew Mr. A really, really well. In fact, he lived with him and his wife for a period of time 
in the 1960s. If we wanted to confirm the type of person Mr A was, we'd found someone who could either destroy this story completely that we'd heard in episode 23, or go a very long way to support it. Now, by the way, before we get into it, I don't want you to get the impression that Mr A is some kind of Mr Big in Burton. He does not need to be. Real murders, which is what we're dealing with here, tend to be sordid, low-key, grubby violence, either revenge or sexually motivated, committed by very ordinary people on other ordinary people. So don't please think there needs to be this big, glamorous gangster Mr. Big around Burton for this to be true. It doesn't. It just needs an ordinary person with a capacity for violence. Now, one other thing before we get into the story. In one of the earlier episodes, the eagle-eared amongst you will have picked up that I called Mr. A. Morris, and that is his first name. Now, there will have been a number of people called Morris knocking around the Burton area at the time. For example, Morris Dewey, I think, was a butcher. It's not him. But some people might be able to work out from what we talk about next who it is, but I'd strongly advise against putting that out on social media. I'm not using his full name, and I don't think it's very smart for anyone else to. So let's get to Mr A. Now I thought long and hard about how to present this section, but I came to the conclusion that the best way would be simply to play you the recording of the conversation I had with, well let's call him Terry. Now I record every conversation. Some make it to the podcast, the vast majority don't. But I always find that the actual recordings that I make at the time of the most authentic version of what people say and just as importantly how they say it. Now it's worth remembering what our original narrator said about Morris. He was involved in cars, garages, both legitimately and illegitimately. He was involved in a range of other small-scale criminal activities. He knew George Robinson. He had a capacity for violence and we also know the story of how he befriended, used, finally killed, one of the people from the northeast. Now, Terry, who we're about to hear from, does not know, at this point, what I've been told and by whom. And that was very important because I did not want to influence what he said to me in any way. And before we join this conversation, I already have had about 10 minutes with him, explaining who I am, explaining what I'm doing, what I'm investigating, and generally trying to put him at ease. I am, as always, a stranger prying into private family memories, so I have to tread very, very carefully at first, just to make sure I've got the confidence of who I'm speaking to. And finally, remember, we're not ourselves stating that Morris was involved in any way. We're simply investigating a claim that was made. So, stay neutral. 
He's my uncle, my mother's brother. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you the truth about him. I hated him. He was I, a bastard. Well, I've heard that. I've heard bad things about him. Let's say that. Yeah. That he was capable of bad things. He was. He was. He threatened to come and give me a good eye and I said, well, fucking come over then. I'm waiting for you. He didn't have come because I'd have fucking killed him. What did Morris do for a living? He was a mechanic. Uh, mechanic come salesman. He used to tell that many lies. I lived with him at one time because I give somebody a good hiding and, and they were in a bad way and uh, I had to go over there out of the way. I was no angel. I lived with him and my auntie. He was a mechanic and he was a sales manager. So, so what, what kind of industry was he in then? Was he, what was he? He, he was in, um, he worked for Burton Autos. In selling cars, garages, that kind of stuff. Selling, well, he said he sold them and, um, and mechanicing on them. Yeah. From what I understand, and I've got to be careful in terms of what I say, in terms of how I know it, he also had his hands in a few dodgy things as well. Yes, that's correct. But was he dangerous? What I, re I mean, remember what I'm trying to work out here. You know, there's a body found in Windsor 71. Yeah. Was Morris capable of doing someone in, is what I'm asking? I couldn't really answer that. He talked a good fight and all, you know, like that, but that's impossible. It is possible. He was a, he was like a, a flash bastard, you know what I mean? I do With know him working you. at garages, he'd always got a flash car. In actual fact, when I lived with him, he bought me auntie an Armstrong Sigley Sapphire. Okay. Uh, and um, he, he had a convertible. Zephyr or con console, suppose. Yeah, to be I, know, I remember them, yeah. Jack Warner. You know, that's what he was like. So it sounds like he had a bit of money. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't remember anyone else driving around a convertible Zephyr. That's, what he, that's how he was. He'd always got flash cars, and when I lived with him, he used to come home at night. He, this is living in a little village. And he used to come home at night and he used to tell me, well, she ended up my stepmother, my auntie, mm. that he got to go to some important meeting and uh, he was off. And just joining these two things up then, did Morris know George? I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't know that because I was very, very young. Yeah, you would have been, yeah. The family, I'll tell you now, there was always a secret about him. My wife will tell you from when I got married, but he tried to create, tried to form a big fucking thing of himself, and I just told her he's arsehole. But there was always, there was always a secret in the family. I could never ever say, figure it out. Now this secret in the family, though, when did you, when were you thinking about? this secret in the family, in terms of when did that become apparent that there was a secret in the family? Was that... From, ve from very early on. So way before 71 then, back in the 60s, oh, yeah, 50s. Oh yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I have to tell you, I've got Morris in my sights on this. I mean, it doesn't mean he did anything. It wouldn't surprise me, he was a dark bastard. There he was. W was he violent though? Yeah, he was. He, um, I got in a bit of trouble and I used to knock around with a lad in the village who uh, the family owned the post office. 
Yeah. And uh, we had to go to the police houses. It weren't a police station. Well, yeah. it was a police station come house. Yeah. Um, for a thrashing. And um, we got a stick. But mm. they, couldn't do, they couldn't do it to me because I was... Um, he was not my legal guardian. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a, a Friday night and he was taking me back home, mm. to, back to Statenall. And um, he said, he was saying on the way home, when I get you home, I'm going to fucking thrash you, he says. That's but anyway, nice. so as soon as I got home, I just jumped out of the car and pissed off and stayed out till his car had gone. <laughs> but he was capable of that kind yeah. of violence. Yeah. It was. I mean, it wasn't just a threat then. I mean, you you, you were aware of him. Oh, yeah, he'd have done it. Yeah. How old have you been then, then? I was 12 or 13. Jesus. Can you kind of give me a physical description of him? What I mean, how high he was, what colour hair he had, and what his build was? He was probably about six foot. Which was tall for the day, wasn't it? His hair. Yeah. He wasn't fat, he was tall and I, I wouldn't say stocky, but I wouldn't say thin, he was in between. So he, he was he was reasonably well built. Six, a six footer back in those days would have stood out anyway, because most people were a bit smaller than that, weren't they then? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah. And that's a good description of him. Yeah. And was he smart? I mean, did he dress smartly? Did, was his hair yes, smart? He did. Yeah. He always had, um, well, when I seen it, I mean, for saying he was a mechanic, he was well well dressed, yes. I'm just going back to his hair now. I remember my dad back in the 60s always had a bit of brill cream in it, you know, slightly, a bit of a wave in it. Was he like that or was he? Yes, know? he was. Was he? Yeah. I've got, I've got a picture of him now, that's good. If that's his physical description, his character, if I was going to ask you a character description, I mean, you say he's, he's full of bullshit, wasn't he? He was a... Yeah, he was, definitely. And the, he was an absolute liar. That's all he ever did was lie, lie, lie. But he was quite flash, wasn't he? In, in... Yes, he was, very. I'd love to know where you get your information. I, I don't, I'm, don't, I'm only going... I don't know him, and and uh, I'm just guessing, really. But it sounds like, from what you're saying, it, it's like he's like this, though. But one of the things that, if you flash, and I remember people in the day like this, they must have got their money from somewhere, because you need a bit of cash to be flash if you get my drift. Yeah. And and I'm just wondering where he got his money from. I mean, where did, did was he just making it on the on the cars or? In, well, I think he probably. Sold cars. Well, I know he sold cars on the side. He's a liar. He's flash. He's mm. he, he's in it for himself, really. It sounds like rather than anybody else. I mean, were they the reasons you didn't like him, or were there other reasons you didn't like him? I mean, because there's a lot of people like that who get away with it, and people say, "Ah, oh, he's a bit of a Jack the Lad," but he's he's you know he's got he's got a good art. But but that doesn't sound no, like. He was always threatening me. Like I say, I was always into mischief, not trouble. And he used to threaten me and all this. My only regret in life is the bastard didn't turn up for the good idea who I told him I was going to give him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but was he threatening you in order to get you back on the straight and narrow, or was he just horrible? He was just horrible. 
Right. He didn't give a shit. He didn't. Okay. I lived with him and his wife, um, and the thing was, he was, he wasn't there, so he couldn't have been looking after me. There was only me and his wife there, and he used to turn up now and again for his clothes and say, "Oh, I've got a business meeting tonight and all this," and he was working for a little village garage. And you see, that doesn't really stack up, does it? Because if you're a mechanic or a salesman working for a little garage... That's right. One, why aren't you just at home like normal people? And secondly, why do you need to be dressing up going to a business meeting? Like, it sounds like he was almost leading a double life. And now he was always living a double life. Why was it the RAF station all the time? At North Luffenham. He had been locked in the cells there, wouldn't you know? He was meeting a woman. I was locked in the cells there. He got the... Well, he was going on RAF camps. I thought them sort of places were out of bounds for people. What would he be doing there? What was his... I don't know. I really hate a clue. Probably they had dances there, I don't know. But not business. You reckon it was like fun rather than business well, I really don't know it's I, a strange place to get, get to isn't it? I'd be locked in there in the cells but it was only for a couple of hours but why would, why would he lock you up though because I'd obviously done something that pissed him off but he knew him well enough to say put this lad in the cells for me and they, and oh, they yeah. did yeah it was the guard ass that sounds like he's got more sway than someone who just goes to a dance to be able to do that, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. He, he, he was a very, very dark character. But I was made to work in this garage um, there uh, that, I can't remember the man's name, I won't it, but I was made to rub cars down and, and mm. all that. Horse mm. labour. Yes, yeah, it sounds like it. You bet you weren't paid either. Oh, no, only with stick. Jesus Christ. Okay. okay well, I tell you what, you haven't half put some pieces in this jigsaw for me. Oh, well, I can put them all in, mate, where, where, they, where they are concerned. You could tell you could tell though how dodgy he was. How come a man from Burton-on-Trent, who lived in Burton-on-Trent, finds a woman right out They lived at, at Luffenham? I mean, how did he? I mean, was he was he just a jack of the lad then? Was he was he just someone who would yeah, sit in was, a pub, pick yeah. up a woman, and he just happened to be there? And next thing you know, he's in a yeah, relationship he had with her. More than one woman when I lived with him, it was always out, and she caught him no end of time. He was the world's biggest liar. He used to tell people, "Oh, I'm, 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 I've been on a rally and all the rest of it." Hmm. Now, I, I suppose one thing we haven't spoken about which wouldn't be a, a bad idea just for five minutes is you know obviously fella gets killed probably yeah. 68 69 yeah obviously found in 71 by david nathan did people ever talk about that did anybody ever say oh bloody hell no what happened there or was it or didn't any no one ever talk about it i mean i'm interested in, in your recollections of that case if you know what i mean well i, I remember it well because i worked at the flour mill next you worked at the flat. You worked at Greensmiths. Yes, I did. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I'm very happy indeed to have you along on the journey, and it's been a long journey. 
and we've got a few miles to go yet, but I think we'll get there. But please, be patient, because there's going to be a few twists and turns yet, but that's all part of what makes it such a compelling story. Now, on Facebook a couple of days ago, someone mentioned whether we should organise a Facebook Live or a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting. And I think that might be quite a good idea, if anyone's interested in that. We did something similar very soon after we started, but that seems a long, long time ago now, and we've come a long, long way since. So, I've got a favour to ask. If someone out there would like to take on the organisation of that, I'll definitely make myself available for that call. And it would be a good chance for people to ask me anything you wanted about the podcast, the process, me, anything on the outstanding leads, or anything at all, really. So I'll let you ponder on that. Drop me an email to fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com if you wouldn't mind organising it. I'd be grateful if you did, because I'm rubbish at organising that kind of thing. And I'm also way down a rabbit hole, as you're about to find out. And Wi-Fi connections are not very good down rabbit holes. Anyway, put the kettle on, make yourself a cup of tea, and strap yourself in. Keep listening, by the way, if you get a chance to listen to some of the other ones, because there's 27 episodes of me trying to solve this flipping murder for the last three years on there. Uh, yeah. and, and it just takes it all the way through from me first talking to David Nathan who found him uh, he was a con- he, he was a special constable a special constable yeah you know I said I got sent away yeah his, his brother right yeah. Nick was sent down the same day what David Nathan's David Nathan's brother, Nick, he was calling Ned. He was sent to, sent down the same day as me. There he was. That's interesting. <laughs> so what, what was he sent down for then? I think, I'm not sure, he burgled Redbane and Todd in Burton. Well, that's odd. That, that's odd, because uh, I, never, I never knew that. Uh, I knew he had a brother. Did his brother work at Greensmith for you? Yes, he did. Meet Nathan. Yeah. But he'd been he'd, he'd done time before that then. Hang on. Yes, he had. But yes, he'd been sent down before. We went through the same um, the same places because uh, you get classified and all that. We were remanded. Yeah. Uh, to the Wissage at Litchfield and then we went to Red Bank Classifying School and he got a Navy so he went to a Navy school a Navy themed place you know what I mean yeah and um, they were tough places came, came back and uh, met him again at um, Burton Mill and they do say well as far as I know he moved down Glastonbury Way somewhere. He was a epic comedy junkie, so drunk like. I'm, I'm going to keep you on for another five minutes now. What year are you talking? Um, what when we were sent down? No, when you were working at, at uh, 
Greensmith. Uh, 68, 69. Right. I do know there was a lot of uh, a lot of drugs about in Burton, and that was because the Americans were on full camp. I know. And we knew quite a few Americans. I know. I know. They were in no end of it. They didn't often come to Burton, did they? The Americans. Yes, they did. Did they? Yes, they did. There was always their Friday night, and they used to come to the Star Pub, which is uh, where we, well, we used to go to a place at the back called the Paradise Rooms, right? And uh, they had disco and that up there. But the Star Pub at the front was for regulars and, and all that, and that is where the drugs were dealt, and also the 76 Club which is where Neg used to go, Mick Nagan. He was there every Friday, Saturday. This is very, 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 very interesting to me. What about places like the Queen's Ad, the Stable Bar? Yeah, that was full of drugs. You really have got me thinking now about uh, people like Mick Nathan. Oh, Neg was on... Was I don't know, dabbling in drugs. Well, I think he was more than dabbling because I think he was one of the main people in Burton at the time for it. Wow. I didn't yeah, know that. That's true. You know, with David having the key to the bridge, I didn't know his brother was was up, up to that kind of stuff. Oh, well, he was well known for it. He was well in with the Yanks from, uh, from Marchington Camp. Fold was all connected with Marchington Camp, but Marchington yeah. Camp is where the Yanks were, and they had stores down there. And they were coming back from Vietnam, weren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's so, right. So they were probably, you'd call it now PTSD, wouldn't you? But, I mean, I imagine they were in a bit of a state. Yeah, there was, there was uh, one or two of them who we knew. If you wanted anything, go to them, but drugs were never my thing. Anything about Greensmith's Mill like that is always of interest because of the proximity of the mill to the body. Yeah. That's, that's just it. I need to go and dig a bit deeper into Mick Nathan. I'm keeping you busy then. Mate. That's, that's David Nathan's brother, Mick. I didn't know that. I knew he. I knew he had a brother, David. I knew David had a brother. I knew he. Yes. David had told me he worked at the mill. I yeah. didn't know that he was into drugs in the way. I mean, he sounds like he was a bit of a Mister Big in the drug side side of things. Well, the the way I see it, the drug people then, yeah, right, was the Yanks at Marchington and Fold, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the people on the street, yeah. Mick Nathan, and yeah. a few others, but they were the big ones. You wanted anything, they got it, or they could get it. It's really, really interesting. So this has been quite a long episode, but I wanted to play you that call in full because Sometimes hearing those calls gives you a much better sense of the believability of the account. Let's deal with Morris first. I've now spoken to two people in his own family. One said he is a killer. 
That was the original narrator. And the person I independently checked that with, who knows nothing about that account, was almost as equally damning about him. And that's powerful. Is that a coincidence? Or is the account that we heard in episode 23 actually starting to carry some of its burden of proof? Now, just because someone was a rogue or a chancer, maybe even a con man, doesn't make him a killer. But equally, that wasn't exactly the greatest character reference I've ever heard. So that story we heard in episode 23 has just passed a little test. It's not proved far from it, but it did definitely get over this particular obstacle. But secondly, what about this suggestion that Mick Nathan, David Nathan's brother, was involved potentially in drugs? Now, a lot of people in the late 60s, early 70s would have been experimenting with drugs. That's no big surprise. Again, that doesn't make you a killer. But establishing a link between someone working at the mill who may have been involved in the drug trade, and remember the mill had a key to the bridge, and that person just happening to be the brother of the man who finds the body, well, my senses were on high alert. Now, armed with that information, the obvious thing for me to do was to speak with David Nathan, which I did, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. But I also spoke to someone who knew McNathan very, very well, though I won't reveal that person's name. And it's only right and fair I point this out. He was adamant that McNathan would never be involved in anything like the case that we're investigating. But was something connected with drugs going on amongst some of the people who were working at the mill? Does that explain these rumours about stuff that was going on in the cottages 126 and 127 Newton Road after the Cunn family had left? And did that have anything to do with how Fred came to be buried about 100 yards away at some point in the late 1960s? Now, I've got some homework to do. And we'll be following both of these threads into the next episode. But that's for next time. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written Produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>